Hello and welcome to the official Ideas for Us podcast. Join us on a journey to discover solutions to Earth's most pressing environmental issues by learning from experts and professionals advancing our sustainable future. On today's episode, we sit down with Taylor Bright, a mycologist based in California, to discuss the benefits of fungi and how she's working to illuminate their ecological importance and promote the holistic regeneration of our living Earth. You can email us at contact.ideasforus.org with your comments, feedback, and questions. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Support this podcast and our environmental action projects by donating or becoming a member at ideasforus.org slash memberships. Thanks. Hope you enjoy the show. Everybody. My name is Lee Perry, and I'm the Chief Operations Officer of Ideas for Us. Super excited today to jump really deep into the deep, deep soil and talk about the benefits of fungi and get to interview my friend and former intern who is now making a name for herself as a really intelligent mycologist, Taylor Bright. And for those of you who are watching on Facebook Live, thank you so much for your time. Please drop questions in the chat. And for those of you listening on our podcast, if you want to check out some of Taylor's visuals, definitely feel free to check out the Ideas for Us YouTube because we're going to be uploading a presentation led by Taylor um, on our YouTube channel. So thank you all for joining us. And Taylor, please take it away. Aw, thank you for that super sweet introduction. And I am so excited to be here with you all today to talk about one of my deepest passions and uh, my dearest friends, the the fungi. Um, So much to share here and so looking forward to kind of going through this this whole scope. Um, You know, fungi are these decentralized creatures and they really... Uh, encompass so many different realms of life. And so um, I'm really looking forward to kind of touching on many of those different realms that I'm involved with and work with and really just be a voice for for the fungi. Um, a little bit about myself. This is a, a long bio, but I tried to encompass all the different uh, realms of work that I do with the mushrooms. Um, yeah, my story takes me through different landscapes and different timelines. And um, I was born and raised in Florida and really first became uh, inoculated with the the presence of fungi there in the wet, humid, swampy environments. There's so much fungal diversity in the Southeast. Um, But I was never really given a platform to study them there. Um, Mycology is a super underrated mega science. And uh, so my first explorations kind of began being being in nature, being in the soil, um, seeing these miraculous fruitings of these multicolored beings coming from all these different areas of the space that surrounds me. It's just holding such deep questions like, who are you and what do you have to teach us? And why are you here? And what do you mean? Um, And really just following that curiosity all the way out to the West Coast where um, 
I started finding community that felt the same way as me. You know, I kind of always thought I was um, a little bit of an outsider because of my my deep love for fungi, and I wasn't able to find community around that. And then out in California, there's whole whole populations of folks who are in such deep reverence to the fungi, and so. I showed up to my first Bay Area Applied Mycology meeting, which is a nonprofit out in uh, California oriented around the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I just showed up and I was like, hey, I don't really know much, but I really love mushrooms and I'm really curious about them. So tell me how to tell me how to get involved. And then that process led me into um, eventually becoming an officer for Bay Area Applied Mycology and uh, really interested in and both cultiv- in cultivation and uh, really the, the facet of applied mycology, which is mostly what I do now. Um, applied mycology being how to ally with the fungal beings to address some of our uh, larger global issues that we're facing right now. Um, and I'll talk a lot about that later. Um, but other than that, I... Uh, I'm just a huge fungal enthusiast. I spend a lot of time outside looking for fungi, getting to know them, uh, learning and listening and studying their roles in ecology. Um, They are the grand molecular recomposers of our planet. So they're really kind of the the foundational beings that are making all this happen and and the reason why we see the world as it is today. Um, they have a huge role in the, the creation of, of life as we know it. Um, really fascinated in, in symbiosis and the interactions of, of all the different beings and fungi are that they are the networks that kind of tie everything in together. Um, and yeah, I, I write a lot of poetry about mushrooms. I make a lot of art about mushrooms. I'm just a, a total uh, devotee to, to the fungal beings, really. And they kind of uh, continuously draw me in in ways that I could have never really imagined. Um, definitely, once you're inoculated, it's like once you see, you can't unsee. It's a wild process like that. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Um, and I am really excited to uh, share what I've learned from the fungi with you all. Um, so when speaking about fungi, there's so much that, that really like wants to come through me. Um, and this being that we see on the screen right now, this is Schizophyllum commune, which is, uh, such a, such a beautiful representation of the fungal kingdom to me. Um, they are, one of the most widely distributed mushrooms. So they're pretty much found all over the world besides Antarctica. Um, and they're incredibly resilient and diverse. They grow on almost any substrate and they, what's really interesting about them and in a little bit of fungal reproduction is fungi are non-binary creatures. So there's literally no such thing as like male or female, all these like constructs that we hold in our human world. Um, they, they reproduce by finding compatible mating types and this fungi has over 28,000 different 
compatible mating types. So they're, the spores that they produce, there's 28,000 different ways that they can come together to create a new organism. So that it just speaks to the incredible amount of diversity and the way that fungi can really begin to like peel back the veils and break us open to a different way of seeing the world outside of our own human constructs. Um, it's also an incredible medicine. Um, there's uh, anti-active, anti-cancer compounds that they've found in, in Schizophyllum commune and it's just a dear friend and look how beautiful, just so incredible. The, the forms and the shapes and the curves and structures that they take. Um, fungi, 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 fungi. You can say it however you'd like. <laughs> There's many different dialects in many different ways. Um, I used to say fungi and now I say fungi. It's changed over time. <laughs> so um, it's really, it's, it's really however you want to, to speak to them. Um, one of the most diverse kingdoms of life in our planet. Um, currently, we know about 120,000 species. Um, that amount of species has been described, so has been like documented and recorded and given names. Um, but scientists and mycologists now... I think that there's around 2.2 to 3.8 uh, million species of fungi that exist on our planet. So that means we know about maybe 6% um, of the fungal species that potentially exist on this uh, great earth. And so it's we're just scratching the surface of really getting to know these fungal beings. Uh, they're so incredibly diverse. And and just for clarification too, when I say fungi, um, it's really talking about the entire kingdom of fungi. So fungi does not mean mushroom. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but fungi encompasses molds and yeast and rust and smuts and mildew and all the non-mushroom forming fungi and the, the beautiful mushrooms that we all know and love. Um, so it's an incredibly diverse kingdom and uh, just like the mushroom forming fungi that we all know and love, you know, molds are also incredibly ecologically significant. They are doing the work of like breaking down our world and transforming organic matter into soil. Um, and it really helps when you, when you start seeing the, the vastness and diversity of fungi and how important they are, because it helps kind of break apart this ideology of mycophobia or like the fear of mushrooms that, you know, predominates in Western culture. And, um, it's, it's a really interesting thing, the way that, um, we are taught kind of like indoctrinated into this fear of fungi because we think, or maybe we're told when we're young, like, Oh, don't touch the mushroom. Like that mushroom's going to kill you. Um, but it's really, it, it's not like that. Um, I think it kind of comes from this fear of the unknown, really. And mushrooms are very uh, cryptic and ephemeral creatures that hide away in the darkness and then come and shine in the light, you know, every so often. But they're so mysterious. And, you know, sometimes we have a hard time um, really deepening a relationship with mystery. And so this is a great way. Studying fungi has helped me personally uh, deepen in my relationship with the unknown and uncertainty and the mystery of existence. Um, and that being said, 
it's great when we realize that because fungi are on you right now. They're on you and in you and all around you. And you're breathing thousands of fungal spores right now. Even as I'm sitting in my house, there are fungal spores circulating in and out of my body and existing in my gut and breaking down the food and my gut biome and all over my skin. That's actually protecting me and enhancing my um, immune system function. And they're everywhere. So Fungi are um, inextricably interconnected to every facet of life. And this is a little chart just to show kind of the main groupings of fungi. We have our, our molds and then um, what we call glomeromycota, which are these our buscular mycorrhizal fungi, which I'll talk about more. Um, they're incredibly ecologically significant. Um, and often those don't even produce mushrooms. So they're fungi that are doing the work in the soil to help plants grow, um, but they don't even make mushrooms. Um, and then we have our two more well-known um, classes of mushrooms, which are the basidiomycota and ascomycota. Um, and those are the, the, the cup fungi and then the gild fungi. And we'll talk more about that later, but this just really goes to show the, uh, the, the diverse array that we can find in, um, our beautiful fungal kingdom. And then just to, and, and really uplift <laughs> when I say the diversity in the fungal kingdom, this is just showing some of the um, the array of expression within the larger or what we call macroscopic fungi. And macroscopic um, just means you're able to see it with the naked eye. They're the, the larger fungal beings. Um, and I won't get too deep in here, but there's an, yeah, just an incredible diversity of expression. We have truffles, which are subterranean fungi that live out their entire life and actually fruit and mushrooms underneath the ground. They're also called hypogea, so like underneath the ground. Um, and we have puffballs and morels, which are cup fungi. And then we have our uh, polypores, which have pores where the spores come out of. And then we have gills, where the spores release from the gills. Um, coral mushrooms that emulate these underwater ecosystems. They look exactly like branching coral. Um, it's really, really profound the amount of, of diversity and expression that they hold in it. For, for me, it really allows us to, to resonate and allow, and allow ourselves to express more in our diversity and uniqueness. Um, diversity in the natural world is... Uh, equates to resilience. And I think we can learn that uh, from the fungi as well, how to embrace diversity and all the different expressions of life and how that can actually make us more resilient as a human community. Because it's definitely worked for the fungi. They've been around for a long, long, long time and they will continue to, to be around for a long time. Um, fungi are, you know, not, not, too different from us. And I put this really awesome um, photo of a stinkhorn mushroom, which literally looks like this wild octopus kind of cephalopod creature that's coming out of the forest floor. They're, they're amazing. Um, and I put that on there because there's a lot of genetic and like characteristic similarities between fungi and animals. Um, but they're, we look so vastly different. <laughs> so how did that happen? 
Fungi are aerobic eukaryotic heterotrophs. So that is just a fancy way of saying aerobic. They breathe, breathe in oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide, just like us. Um, eukaryotic mean they're multicellular and uh, have complex cellular structure. And heterotrophs, meaning that they need to get their food from the outside world, just like we do. They can't produce their own food like plants. Plants are autotrophs, meaning like producing their own food from sunlight. So fungi have to, to get their nutrients from the outside world and have created really incredible mechanisms to do so. Um, so animals and plant or animals and fungi actually share a more, more recent common ancestor than animals and, or fungi and plants. Um, so for a long time, fungi and mycology, the study of fungi was grouped underneath the study of botany. So people thought for scientists for a long time, thought that fungi were just these like specialized plants. And then um, through the increasing technology and genetic sequencing and different um, realms of understanding our world, we figured out that fungi are actually much closer related to animals than they are to plants, um, which is really fascinating. And so it kind of totally rewired the, uh, the understanding of our world when we figured out that um, plants are, are less closely related to fungi than um, fungi are to animals. And you can see in this little um, chart of our beautiful uh, kingdoms, of our five kingdoms or, or queendoms or they-dums, um, <laughs> You can see that fungi and animals kind of the, the they branch closer than uh, fungi and plants do. So uh, we share a lot of DNA with fungi, and we share a lot of uh, metabolic processes that fungi do as well. Which um, for I'll speak about later, but uh, can actually help when it comes to um, integrating the medicine that fungi produce in our bodies. It's one of the reasons why fungal medicine is so uh, efficient in the human body. And a little bit about um, fungal biology and ecology, because I think it's really important, you know, if we're going to deepen our understanding with these beings, or if we're going to, you know, if we're interested in fungi and want to to explore our own um path in mycology, it's really important to understand, you know, like what these beings are and uh, what roles they play and kind of have a general understanding around um, how they express themselves. And so a little bit about fungal anatomy. Um, so all mushrooms are comprised of chitin. Chitin is their structural uh is the structural polymer that makes up their, their cells. And so it's interesting because chitin is the same structural polymer that makes up uh, the cells in crustaceans and arthropods like crabs and insects. Um, so it really uh, goes to show that fungi have this incredible uh, structural capacity um, and that expresses itself in many ways from being firm to touch and having uh, really strong stipes and why they can, you know, break through a lot of really hard material to when they want a fruit. Um, they, so, so the mushroom itself is really just the above ground sexual reproductive structure of the body of the fungus. 
So when we say mushroom, we're referring to that, that fruiting body. And I even like to challenge the word fruiting there because we're not talking about plants here. So like a mushrooming body. Um, and then the real, the, the real work of the fungus and the life of the fungus is happening underground, um, underneath in the rhizosphere where it's interacting with soil biology and the roots of plants and kind of totally out of the eye. Um, and this consists of the vegetative part of the, the fungus called mycelium, and um, which is created from extensively branching and fractaling networks of hyphae, which are single cell thick, these tiny little filaments that scan through the ground and uh, grow in all directions and um, are seeking food and nutrients and water and exploring and uh, discovering their underground world. And, you know, they don't need eyes. They, they're not visual creatures, but they do have intelligence. They are responsive and contextual creatures, and they're continuously responding to all the different perturbations that are happening underneath the soil. And um, their, their way of kind of seeing without eyes comes from their ability to respond and to sense um, different electromagnetic pulses and different vibrations in the soil and different chemical signals in the soil. And there's so many different ways that the fungi are intelligently moving through the world and really um, orienting themselves towards and away from from food and threats. And uh, it really makes us, you know, question like, what is intelligence? Uh, what intelligence doesn't mean you have to have a brain. And it kind of helps us uh, see past the very like head centric idea of intelligence. Um, and I like to think that that mycelium really act as, you know, the earth's neural network that's sending information and, and memory and resources all throughout the forest floor and throughout um, many different ecosystems. Um, another, so there's ways to many, many different ways to identify fungi because they're so diverse. Um, there's their, the cap, they can have scales, they can have gills or pores, um, or they can be cups like cup fungi. And those are all just different ways of, um, making their reproductive spores, um, which are the little packets of genetic material for the next generations. They can have rings, they can have stems or no stems. They can be above ground or below ground. Um, so many different ways and they can have different spore colors and odors and tastes and um, different reactions to chemicals that can help you identify. Um, their spores look different under a microscope. They grow on different substrates. Um, it's, it's incredible. Um, and the, the journey of getting to know fungi is really, you know, an experiential journey. I can, I can be here and, and tell you all about these different things, but it won't compare to actually just going out and like sitting with a mushroom and getting to know that mushroom in a personal way. That's how I have learned all my different mushrooms is really just like going deep out in the forest and just finding one and, and not even like needing to know what it is, but just sitting with the mushroom and being like, you know, what, who are you and what do you have to tell me? And then eventually, you know, breaking out the field guide and finding out all the little like juicy tidbits of information, but, um, they have their own, their own lives and characteristics and personalities and things to, to say and share. Um, okay. Go to the next one. 
Uh, great. So the mushroom life cycle can take many different forms, but this is a really simplified version of the, um, the above ground, uh, what we call basidiomycetes, or that just means gill fungi. Um, they contain basidia, which is their spore producing structures. So the gills on gilled mushrooms, they drop their spores through amazing different reactions. They can produce their own air currents and they can, um, the, there's this concept called the Bueller's drop, which um, the, the basidia, which are the spore producing structures on the gills can take in water and then they form their own water droplets and use that water pressure to like eject their spores into, into space. It's incredible. Um, so the spores are going to come down, lay on the ground. Um, if the right environmental conditions um, are present, like temperature, pH, water, the presence of water is really important for spore germination. Um, those spores are going to germinate and um, hyphae, the, the, those hyphal filaments are going to start growing. Those are going to meander through the ground and use a lot of different um, ways of communication, really, to find hyphal threads of um, a different spore of the same species or a different hyphae of the same species or um, hyphae of, of themselves. So they're really orienting to like, how can I find my kin in, in the soil? And then these hyphae merge, they exchange genetic material. Um, and then that creates this interlocking, interweaving network of, of hyphae create the mycelial network. Um, and then from mycelium, they, um, they condense and coalesce. And then they eventually, when um, environmental signals are triggered of like, oh, I got to reproduce if there's like lack of food or lack of moisture. Um, well, actually, they, they, I take that back. They need moisture to produce the mushroom. Um, but the mycelium condense and they form what we know, know as a mushroom. Um, the mushrooms are really just condensed, like epically condensed amounts of mycelium. Um, they're not a, a different uh, type of material. They're just condensed mycelium that fill up with water and then um, uh, specialize, the cells specialize and create uh, what we know as the beautiful diverse mushrooms that we see. So that's a, just, just scratching the surface of the the really beautiful um, intricacies of the fungal life cycle. Um, so fungal ecology, I, I must say, you know, I find it pretty interesting that um, I was able to get a degree in biology without ever having taken a class on fungi or without ever having taken a class on mycology. Um, I remember in my microbiology lab, we like kind of touched on fungi just a little bit. We like looked at a couple slides with, um, with mushrooms on them or not even mushrooms, but with like different molds, mold spores on them. Wow. That was a long time ago. But, um, yeah, just really, really now as a mycologist and someone who studies fungi so deeply and really, uh, more as as someone who studies ecology and all the different inner workings of the systems and cycles of the planet, um, to seeing how fungi is such an essential part of the understanding of our planet. 
um, both the understanding of how we got here, like how life evolved itself, and also where we are and how these systems and cycles are continuing to unfold, and also what the future might hold. You know, these these fungal organisms are really the underpinnings of why and how life itself exists. <laughs> and so it's a huge mega science that is um, really neglected, but at the same time, it's it's coming online in a really big way, both, you know, literally and metaphorically. Um, it is being recognized um, by the public sphere in ways that uh, make me really excited um, that this knowledge is really coming into into the grander scope of things. And because really mycology as a science itself is, is only about a century old. And you know that you might think, oh, that's, that's a long time. But given given the scope of things, um, given the scope of their presence on the earth, it's really not that long that we've been intensely studying these beings. And so there's so much to, to learn from them. Um, they're the grand molecular decomposers and recomposers of our planet. Um, they've been doing this work for a long, long, long time. And if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for um, fungi's ability to create these enzymes to break down organic matter and lignin and cellulose, our world would be buried under like miles and miles and miles of organic matter that has like never decomposed. So it's really wild to think about that. Um, they, through that decomposition, they're building soil, um, they're recycling nutrients, they're huge players in the, the grand cycles of carbon and nitrogen phosphorus on our planet that kind of dictate life itself. Um, they're provide food and habitat for animals and for the little tiny beings in the soil. Um, they connect entire forests and entire ecosystems and landscapes. They actually alter the hydrological cycles um, which is really fascinating that I'll talk about. And um, they also provide immunity for animals, plants, forests, humans. They are um, they are definitely a, uh, a powerful force of of healing and health for all of life. Um, it really helps to to know fungi's role in in the ecosystems around us. Um, and a lot of their, their means of nutrition and how they acquire nutrition and how they eat actually helps distinguish their roles in the ecosystem. Um, and there's kind of these three main groupings of um, fungal nutrition. There are uh, what we call saprotrophic mushrooms. Uh, saprotrophic literally translates to sapro, meaning dead or dying or decaying, and trophic meaning feeding or eating. So these are the fungi that are feeding and eating the dead and decaying organic material on the world. They're the fungi that you're going to see growing out of uh, logs and dead stumps and trees um, and poop and um, whatever else is dead or decaying, um, including animals, all different types of things. Um, there's the mutualistic or biotrophic fungi, um, which include the mycorrhizae. And these are fascinating beings. And that is the mutualistic relationship between fungi and plants. So living plants and living fungi the mycelium and the roots of those plants create this mutualistic symbiosis that um, 
helps the plants live and the fungi live. Um, there's endophytic fungi, which is fungi that live in or on the cells of plants. So on leaves and on bark, um, this is a huge branch of fungi that, um, we're really just learning the intricacies about. Um, and they're really, really important. It's found that every plant actually has these endophytic fungi living in or on them, um, as like an innate part of their life. Um, and then we have lichens as well, um, which I'll talk about a little bit later. And then we have parasitic fungi, those that are sapping the life force out of their, their living plants and living hosts. And it's really cool to think about it, how, you know, fungi are, they're living in their food. And it's cool to, to imagine, you know, if we were like fungi, um, we would have these our stomachs would be like secreting hydrochloric acid into the world and like digesting all this stuff. And then we would reabsorb it back through our skin. <laughs> That's kind of what they're doing. They're, they're um, ejecting these extracellular enzymes and acids into their world around them and then liquefying it and breaking it down into the elemental components that they need and then reabsorbing it back through their um, mycelium. And it is rad. They are so metal. <laughs> um, here's a, a really cool um, illustration from my friend uh, Willoughby. He has this incredible book um, uh, on cultivation of fungi. And this is a diagram from his book that talks about the different, the three different um the three different modes of nutrition and some of the different examples of, of fungi that uh, eat in those ways. So um, morels kind of edge on being mycorrhizal fungi and saprotrophic fungi. And then we have the super saprotrophic fungi like shaggy manes, which are dear, dear friends of mine. And I make art with them. Um, and then reishi are also decomposers. So they are um, breaking down wood and lignin and organic material. Then you have honey mushrooms, which are parasitic. Um, they are actually um, taking the life force out of the tree and can, can cause some pretty severe uh, vegetation loss in some forest ecosystems. Um, and then you have mycorrhizal fungi like matsutakes and amanitas are mycorrhizal as well. Um, so they have their plant host that they're associated with. And this uh, is a really beautiful diagram showing just a little bit more of a visual aid and showing how these hyphal tips, these filaments that are going under the ground are secreting organic acids and enzymes and breaking down um, cellulose and lignin and even rock. So these, there's organic acids that, um, that fungi produce that literally mine rock for these essential minerals that they need, and then they can uptake those minerals. Um, so they're just doing the work and breaking down and, and all the time everywhere. So, so essential. Um, here is a, a great illustration on how they how fungi are such incredible, um, participants really in the carbon cycles. And I won't get too deep into this because this can be a whole presentation on itself. Um, but fungi are breathing out CO2, but then they're also, the mycorrhizal fungi are also sequestering carbon from um, the atmosphere and holding it in the soil. And they're helping plants 
um, hold carbon in their roots. And there's all these different ways that fungi are really doing the work in um, helping cycle carbon through our atmosphere and through our world, um, as well as nitrogen. Um, fungi are taking plants and decomposing them and making these more complex molecules available to microbes and bacteria in the soil, um, nitrifying bacteria that can then transform um, ammonium into nitrites, into nitrates, and back into the, the systems and make them available to plants. Um, so they're a really key component in a lot of these uh, nutrient cycles that I'm assuming there's probably a handful of gardeners here. So if you, you know, know and love your plants, then you got to love the fungi because they're, they're making the plants able to do what they do. And the, one of the most exciting things to me, um, in the realm of fungi in the realm of seeing our world too, is just the the entire concept and really deep understanding and participation in symbiosis, um, meaning, you know, just the interaction of organisms and the relationships of beings on this planet. Um, symbiosis, you know, is the way that life um, got to where it is um, against, not really against, but challenging some of the Darwinian notions of, you know, um, natural selection and competition and uh, survival of the fittest. I personally hold the belief that life is a product of collaboration and participation and symbiosis. And life itself is really just the emergent properties of all these different forces coming together. Um, and fungi really emulate that in a powerful way um, and exemplify that. So fungi are in symbiosis with just about everything on the planet. Like I said earlier, there's fungi living on your body. There's fungi living on your walls. There's spores flying through the air. There's fungi living on plants and animals and in the soil. So, you know, symbiosis being just the interaction of two things, fungi are in symbiosis with pretty much everything in life. Um, even underwater, you know, there's this new um, science coming out about how fungi are actually one of the main uh, decomposers of detritus and of um, organic material on the benthic floor of the ocean. So fungi are like a huge key component in the food cycles and in the food web of our marine ecosystems, which is just incredible. It's like, okay, yeah, they're everywhere. Um, and, you know, fungi, fungal algal symbiosis are, is one of the reasons why, why life is how we see it today. Um, for about 450 million years ago, there was this really like ancient agreement that went on where there were cyanobacteria and algae living in the, the prehistoric ocean. And then they wanted to come onto land to get more sunlight to, photosynth to photosynthesize more efficiently. And so these algae and the very primitive fungi kind of in the form of lichens decided to make an agreement. And the fungi said to the algae, well, you know, we'll bring you onto land if you can photosynthesize and give us some of your sugars for, from photosynthesis and we can help you get nutrients in the water you need so that you can come out of the ocean. 
because originally the, the algae were like bathing in this nutrient rich, rich water, rich substance of the ocean. Um, so it was this ancient agreement, kind of like the birth of this love story is like how, how I like to think of it, um, of the fungi and the algae coming together and sharing in this beautiful reciprocity um, and forming really like the primitive lichens which then evolved into some of the, the non-vascular um, uh, primitive plants and then eventually into vascular plants and eventually into um, trees and conifers and flowers. And so it was really the fungi that brought plants and photosynthesizing bacteria onto land to create life, to create plants. Um, so thanks for that deep, deep reverence. Um, and lichen, you know, those primitive symbiotic mutual agreements, we still see them today everywhere in the form of lichen. Um, lichen are these incredible organisms and uh, in this conglomeration of photosynthesizing algae and um, fungal hyphae that come together and uh, produce these organisms um, that range in color and size and shape. And there's so many different expressions of them in the world and they live all over the world. Um, there's even in Antarctica, they found lichen, lichen beings. Um, they are, so they are um, comprised of two kind of different organisms. Um, the, what we call the mycobiont which are the, the fungi, and then the photobiont, which are the algae. And, and you can see in this little diagram, these, these algal cells are just like encapsulated by the, the fungal hyphae. And they're still doing that agreement where the, the algae is photosynthesizing and creating carbon sugars. And then they're giving some of those sugars to the fungi and the fungi are holding water and also like mining the nutrients from whatever substrate they're growing on. So that's why you can see these lichen growing on rock because it's the fungi that are like putting out acids and enzymes into the rock, literally breaking down the rock, absorbing it through their hyphal walls and giving that nutrients to the, the algae that are photosynthesizing and it's this whole just dynamic um, unfolding that's happening all over the world and it's it's just so incredible and you can see the the expression in, of the fungus in some of these algaes like when it gets really wet outside you'll see these ascocarps forming or what's really like the fruiting body of the fungus coming out of the lichen um, and that's just the mushroom of the lichen which is really incredible. Um, lichens have so many medicinal properties and um, also vary in a lot of different pigments as well. Um, and those pigments are actually used as sunscreen for the algae. So the, the, the fungi are producing these, these UV sensitive pigments that are acting as sunscreen to protect the algae from getting too much sun. It's incredible. Um, Cool. How, how am I doing Lee? Is there any like burning questions that want to come through? I feel like I'm just like talk so much. <laughs> oh, I'm like tearing up with all of it. It's like, it, it, I almost feel like I just realized aliens are here <laughs> on earth, you know, like there's another being that I don't un fully understand that is living on me and in mm -hmm. me. 
and everywhere around me. <laughs> um, the only question that's come in so far, far is more on the medicinal side. And I know you're mm-hmm. getting up to that. So yeah. I will ask it right around when you start hitting that point. Great. Yeah. Awesome. But you're doing great. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Let me know if anything um, comes through that is really exciting. That well, way. I really love, I really love the fact that you're talking about, about them, like they're, like they're human beings. You're saying they, you're saying just that mm-hmm. like you're building a relationship and it sounds so awesome because I think people look at these creatures, like they are a piece of paper or something like mm-hmm. an object, mm-hmm. but it's very much a living system that is mm-hmm. even a little bit more complicated than our own existence. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and they can really show us a lot about our own nature and that we ourselves are not things, but processes. We are processes that are just the amalgamation of, of trillions of cells undergoing their own, um, unfoldings of life. And the fungi can really show us, um, our dynamicism and, And also just seeing them, you know, not even for what they do for humans, but just looking at them within themselves is miraculous. And, and their, um, the legacy of their existence on this planet is just so phenomenal. Um, I am currently reading a book by Merlin Sheldrake called the entangled life, which I highly recommend for anyone wanting to nerd out super hardcore about fungi. And he says that, um, you know, fungi, are not things, they are processes. And I love to, to think about that in that way, um, about the world, you know, about everything living, they are not things, they're processes. And how do we honor the the process of their life? Speaking of processes, this is one of my, um, just, I guess one of the, the elements of mycology or the, the branches of the study of fungi that interests me most and definitely want to, um, what I see my path in uh, mycology going towards is the study of mycorrhizae um, and ecosystem function. But mycorrhizae is that mutualistic uh, relationship between the roots of plants and the um, mycelium and the hyphae of fungi, um, this ancient mutualism. And today it's, it's estimated that over 90% of plants uh, rely on their fungal partners to survive both in seed germination and um, in sapling growth and throughout their entire life. Um, these, these mycorrhizal fungi increase the surface area and the reach of plant roots anywhere from like 10 to a thousand times. So where roots end, it's really the mycorrhizal fungal uh, mycelial networks that are extending the reach of these plants, you know, so far um, past what the the plants can do themselves. Um, And they're extending them, you know, into the, into one another. So here, I'll, I'll skip to this one. So this is a great, um, visual. It's, it's really nice to have visuals. And for those people who are maybe listening without the visuals, um, I'll, I really try my best to explain this in like an understandable way. 
Um, but so you have two trees in a forest ecosystem and they don't even have to be the same species of tree, but there are fungal partners that associate with a specific type of tree or plant. Um, and it's the mycelium of that fungus that will partner with the roots and do that, that mineral and nutrient exchange and chemical exchange. So there's so many different things that are happening here. If one, if one plant is being attacked by a specific parasite, that tree can actually send out chemical signals through the, the fungal networks and tell trees around it, like, ah, I'm being attacked. Time to like put up your defense chemicals so that you don't get attacked as well. So there's this communication happening and this like whole forest ecosystem um, kind of what's the word I'm looking for altruism that's happening when they're really like the trees are looking out for themselves, looking out for them, for their kin. Um, there's a woman named Suzanne Samard, who's a professor of forestry at the university of British Columbia, who's kind of been the, the um, spearhead of a lot of this scientific research in mycorrhizal studies. And um, she's currently doing what's called a mother tree project. Cause she's one of the first people, her and her colleagues and students have found out that um, the old growth really long lasting legacy trees in a forest ecosystem are these nodes that have the most connections to other trees in a forest. So they, they call them mother trees. Um, and these mother trees have been found to, you know, when they drop seedlings to specifically send nutrients and carbon sugars and different ways to their seedlings. So they have this ability to recognize who their kin, like who their children are in a forest ecosystem and send nutrients and um, different um, reserves to, to their kin, to their, their children to help them survive. And there's this, this science is so deep and I can nerd out about this. So for, for hours and hours and hours, but that's a general um, overview of some of the mycorrhizal dynamics um, there's many different types of mycorrhizal fungi. So there's ectomycorrhizae, arbuscular mycorrhizae, orchid mycorrhizae that specifically um, pair with orchids. There's ericoid mycorrhizae that pair with the heath plants. So like blueberries and cranberries and um, vaccinium. Um, there's arbutoid mycorrhizae. Um, but mostly I like to study the ectomycorrhizae and the arbuscular mycorrhizae. Ectomycorrhizae are um, the fungal hyphae are in this are surrounding the cells in what um, creates a Hartig sheath. And then the arbuscular mycorrhizae are actually penetrating the cells and forming what's called these arbuscules, which look like little trees um, within the cells themselves. So like talk about intimacy, you know, these, these plants are giving consent. That's another thing. It's not just like this penetrative thing, there's consent happening through chemical signaling where the plants are giving consent for these specific fungi to come in and penetrate their cell walls to exchange nutrients. And it's just this incredible relational dynamic that um, I think we have a lot to, to learn from. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's, there's so much to say here. Oh, mycorrhizae. And ultimately to me, you know, they're there and, and many other people see it in this way, but 
through the, the through their branching, through their ability to connect, through their signaling, which it's found that there's actually a lot of electrical signaling happening. And that's one of the ways that they communicate, that trees can communicate through each other and that fungi can communicate with the trees is through electrical signaling. So networking and electrical impulses and intelligence and communication and memory forming and, you know, kind of sounds like our brain, right? Um, so I think of this, this network as the, you know, the neural network of our planet is really like the brain of our planet that is holding such profound and deep intelligence. Um, fungi can make rain, which is really amazing. So life creates the the conditions conducive to life. Um, fungal spores, as they're dropping their spores, they fly up in the air and they actually um, act as what we call hydroscopic or water seeking or a condensation nuclei, which literally means that they contain um, different electrical components that attract water to them. So the fungal spores are attracting water droplets in the air condensing them, forming um, larger water droplets that eventually condense and form clouds and make rain. So there's this entire system and trees are doing that as well through their volatile compounds that they're they're sending out into the air. So there's this entire system that forests and their organisms are actually creating rain, which is forming these large systems of um, what's called the biotic pump that's bringing moisture in from the coast and dropping it down and creating these like miniature hydrologic cycles um, above a forest that is therefore like taking care of the forest. So life creating the conditions conducive to life. Um, And this is a cool fact, fungi, like I guess worldwide produce around 50 megatons of spores each year, which is equivalent to the weight of a hundred thousand blue whales. <laughs> so like these tiny little, that's how, that goes to show like how many fungal spores are flying around everywhere all the time. So like we are all in it. Um, foraging. This is something that I love to do so much. Um, it's really the way to get to know your beings. And I'm so grateful to live um, in a place to live on Southern Pomo and Costa Miwok occupied territory, which is currently called today, Sebastopol, California, but just this entire area of the world and all of the Pacific Northwest, um, that has really been intentionally tended by the indigenous peoples for, for thousands and thousands of years. And to be able to, to be in relationship with the product of their tending and with this land has just been, such an incredible joy and a privilege, such an immense privilege to be able to um, receive uh, gifts from. And yeah, the the coast out here is one of the most fungally, the Redwood Coast is one of the most fungally diverse places um, in the world. And it's really, really amazing. I, I feel so blessed to be here and um yeah, when we're out foraging, we're picking for the fr- the fruiting body as our ancestors did for a long, long time all over the world. You know, we've been foraging for mushrooms and being in relationship with these beings. And um, when you're foraging for a mushroom, you know, it's it's kind of like picking an apple off of an apple tree. That's the metaphor we like to use. It's, you're just seeing the, the fruiting body, the reproductive structure of this whole interwoven network of um, fungal mycelium. So 
that being said, you know, there's still ways to really consciously forage and ethically forage, um, just like with all plants and all beings, um, don't go into it with an extractive mindset of like, how many am I going to get today? You know, really, really listen to the land and listen to the fungi. And sometimes if you, if you sit with them and you ask for consent, um, sometimes they say no, but it takes a really trained ear to really hear when a mushroom says no, when you want to pick it. And there's different ways of looking at that. You know, some of these more medicinal mushrooms are perennial polypores that can live anywhere from like 10 to 20 to 30 years. So if you're going and you're finding this, you know, 20 year old mushroom and you want to go harvest it, you know, is it, is it really yours to harvest? And that's kind of the question that I like to hold is like, what is mine to take? How do I stay in right relationship with these beings? How am I not taking more than I need? Um, there's this whole kind of list that I've created, you know, with, with influence from Robin Wall Kimmer's Honorable Harvest um, from the book Breeding Sweetgrass. She's really helped me see how I can apply that to um, foraging for fungi and uh, being in relationship with that. Because, you know, we're not the only beings that like to eat them. There's, there's beings out there that rely on fungi in the environment to, um, to have and you cut or pick doesn't matter. Um, there's been a lot of studies that pe some people are like, ah, oh, you got to cut them. And some people are like, oh, you got to pick them. Um, and ultimately it doesn't matter. Um, but some people might tell you otherwise. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a lot that I could say here about that. Um, here's some beautiful photos of some of my foraging adventures. Um, to the bottom left, that's morel hunting in the Sierras. And then above that is um, Amethysta occidentalis, Lacaria Amethysta occidentalis, which is this beautiful purple mushroom that grows in our area. That's actually um, been a in the Rocky Mountains. There's just, there's so much, it's lovely. And here's more, more fungal diversity. This is actually from a, a foray that I went to with the local mycological society. And, you know, to be completely honest, this, this sometimes kind of bothers me, um, to just take everything you see out of the forest and just lay it on a table. It is great for educational reasons and for identification reasons, but if you're going out and foraging, I definitely don't recommend you to just like pick and pull everything that you see. Um, because usually what happens after this is just like thrown in a little pile. Um, and it just doesn't feel to me personally, and this is my own opinion, it doesn't feel honorable to these fungi to just take them all and then um, throw them away. A um, little bit about cultivation. There's, I, I'm also a cultivator. I grow my own mushrooms in many different ways. Um, there's totally high lab, high tech lab techniques, which are beautiful within themselves. Um, but they can be kind of unaccessible and very costly and you have to use a lot of sterility in those. Um, I have a lot of experience with lab technique, but I prefer uh, low cost, low tech, low waste, um, you know, using what's emulating how fungi grow in nature and just facilitating that process. Um, so we can divert agricultural waste streams to grow fungi. Um, you can grow fungi on coffee grounds, uh, corn waste, on compost, on cardboard, um, on, you know, old furniture, on books. There's a lot of different mushrooms that can grow on uh, a vast amount of, of substrates. Um, and then you have log inoculation where you're 
you know, drilling holes in wood and then putting the mycelium um, through dowels or whatever method um, into the wood. So that's a little bit longer term way of cultivating. Um, and then for garden folk out there, um, one of my favorite garden mushroom allies are what are the Latin name is Strafaria rugoso annulata, um, also called garden giant or king Strafaria um, or wine cap. They are incredible beings that um, produce these long stringy hyphal threads called rhizomorphs. And they, they go in and they are really doing the work to breaking, break down organic matter and create habitat for soil microbes and um, get, you know, cycling nutrients and making it accessible to plants. So they're called garden giants because they're great garden companion mushrooms and they're really easy to grow. You can, I've literally just had wood chips, piles of wood chips and taken mycelium and thrown it on the wood chips and mix it up, um, keeping it in cool, dark areas and these these fungi will grow and they're huge and beautiful burgundy red and they're edible and delicious um they kind of taste like portobello um so here are some pictures these are all my own pictures of just some examples of like low cost low tech really accessible ways that you can um grow and cultivate fungi and um you know that's an entire conversation of its own but if you're interested in any of these reach out to me and i would love to sit with you and teach you how to grow your own mushrooms whether you're in florida or whether you're in california or whether you're in europe you know we all have the ability to have autonomy in our uh, food and medicine and grow our own, grow our own fungi. Um, they're out there and they want we to do, be created. I do have a question um, yeah. about whether or not mushrooms are sentient beings. Ooh, that is a great question. A vegetarian wants to know and um, someone else wants to know a little bit more information about mycorrhizae in relation to vegetable gardening. Hmm. Okay, cool. Um, I also want to do a time check. Lee, when, when's my end time for this presentation? You know, uh, whenever you want, <laughs> you tell me <laughs> that feels so good. Cause yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> um, cause timing definitely, um, is a thing and I can talk for a long time. So Thank you for that spaciousness. And okay. So to address those questions, the first question are mushrooms, are fungi sentient beings? I think that really, and this is something I think about and have held as a question for a really long time. And, you know, I, I extend that question to all of life. You know, what is sentient? And I think it comes down to asking that question. What, what does sentient mean to you? What does sentient mean to us? Um, what does, how do we define intelligence? How do we define what is alive and what's not? Um, so in, for me, in, in to be a sentient being is, is holding intelligence, holding the, the means to respond to environmental stimuli, holding the means to communicate and uh, collaborate and be in relationship and feel um, and I personally think mushrooms are absolutely sentient beings, but definitely hold a different expression of that, that, um, 
of being sentient than, you know, humans or animals would. Um, and it really helps me to extend my own definitions and capacity of what being an intelligent or an emotional being is and extending it to the fungi. Cause you know, I've sat with fungi a lot and to me, they are absolutely emotional beings. Um, but they're not gonna, they're not gonna tell you that through voice or through language. Um, but they might tell you that in other ways and they're responding to their environment. There's, they're incredibly adaptive creatures that are responding and understanding and, and seeing their world, not through eyes, but through different sensory organs and communicating not through voice, but through electricity and chemicals, um, so that is a great question. And I really, you know, I'm not the one who's going to answer that. I think the only way we can answer whether or not we think something is sentient and intelligent and alive is by answering that within ourselves. Um, so I really invite you the next time you see a mushroom, sit with it and ask it whether it's sentient or not. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's what I'm going to say about that. And then, um, the, the other question about mycorrhizal fungi in relationship with vegetables. So that's a great question as well. Um, most of our crops, most of our vegetables and food that we eat are also um, rely on their mycorrhizal partners to, um, to survive. Mostly the genus Glomeromycota is a really huge genus of our buscular mycorrhizal fungi um, that are, you know, doing that, that work of bringing nutrients and water to plants. Um, and they are, yeah, in relationship with most of the, the vegetables and food that we eat. And um, besides, there's, there's certain plants like the brassicas that are actually non-mycorrhizal species. So brassicas and corn and, you know, a couple other families of plants are actually non-mycorrhizal. Those make up for the small percentage of plants that are non-mycorrhizal. Um, and, you know, there's, there's hypotheses out there that corn actually used to be a mycorrhizal species, but through our intensive agriculture and monoculture and like pumping in fertilizers and pesticides and different things, we've actually made corn evolve to be non-mycorrhizal because in the garden and in agriculture, when you're in putting in so many nutrient inputs and fertilizing, it's actually promoting, um, the disconnection of mycorrhizal and plant symbiosis because the plants have all this, um, all these nutrients already provided to them. So why would they need their fungal partner to do the work to provide their nutrients for them? So it's actually, um, it's very disadvantageous to the, the fungal plant symbiosis when you put fertilizer into a system. Um, it discourages the, even the formation of that relationship, it can discourage, um, which, you know, if the plants are getting all their nutrients, great, but there's so many emergent properties that come from that, uh, that mycorrhizal symbiosis that the plant then is not receiving because the, the relationship hasn't formed. And ultimately you're going to have a much less healthier plant a much less healthier ecosystem, um, that's why I'm, you know, such an advocate for no-till and like letting those networks and, and communities and organisms flourish in the soil 
um, because, you know, extensive and abrasive tilling can also um, kill the mycorrhizal symbiosis of plants and fungi. Um, so there's, there's a lot to say there. Um, I'm all for regenerative agriculture in, in the means of bringing mycorrhizal fungi back into systems and um, really just letting the, these intelligent beings do what they've been doing for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, so that's what I have to say about that, but much more I could say. Um, so we're going to take a little uh, detour into mushroom medicine and um, you know, Medicine, I think, can can mean a lot of things. I think everything I've been talking about is also medicine, uh, like e ecological medicine. You know, these these quote unquote non medicinal fungi are still performing acts of healing in the environment all the time. Um, that are allowing medicinal plants to grow. That are allowing uh, our immune systems to flourish. Even even the molds and yeasts and bacteria and all these things on our skin are medicine that are keeping our immunological functions um, going and keeping them regenerative. Um, but focusing a little bit more on the on the medicinal mushrooms um, is a really fun dive, a really fun deep dive. And um, medicinal fungi have been used extensively throughout human history all over the world. You know, this is the, the field of m mushroom medicine is nothing new. Um, our ancestors have been using this for a long, long, long time, dating all the way back to 9000 BC and um, certain tribal bands in North Africa. Um, they have there's beautiful, um, pretty elaborate uh, cave paintings and cave carvings on the inside of some caves in Northern Africa of depictions of mushrooms. Um, they're extensively used in China and in Chinese medicine for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Reishi, um, given the name Lingji in Chinese medicine, um, which is the mushroom of immortality. And, you know, they, they hold the Reishi and in such um, significance and really revere the, the mushrooms. Um, also in Europe. So in my ancestry in Northern Europe and, um, in Scandinavia and in Norway and in Germany, you know, there's a huge elaborate kind of cultural, uh, relationship with mushrooms in Europe as well. And it's, it's both, I feel both grief and praise in that because in, in the Western world, you know, our relationship with fungi has definitely been fissured in a lot of ways. And through, through that process of what I was talking about earlier, through, um, the mycophobia and kind of being taught that, oh, these, these beings are weird and dark and scary and dangerous. So we should stay away from them. And it's actually done a huge disservice I think to, um, to modernity, um, to be in fear of these beings and not to be in relationship with them. Like our ancestors were also want to make a shout out here to, um, to Maria Sabina, who is a Mazatec curandera in, um, in Mexico. And she was one of the, the people who held this, uh, the medicine of sacred mushrooms and, um, psychoactive mushrooms. She was really a deep medicine woman and holder of these, um, psychoactive mushrooms that, um, were eventually, you know, e exploited and, um, taken to the Western world and then 
kind of blew up in this whole whole way. And unfortunately, her culture and her people were um, pretty devastated and impacted by the way that um, psychoactive mushrooms were brought into the Western world from from her sacred practices, um, which she used only ceremoniously and only in ceremony. Um, and then they were taken and, you know, a lot of the, the, the partiers and rock stars got on the kick and, you know, we, we held the question just like everyone is like, what is God and how do we find God? And, um, uh, long story short, a lot of, you know, Westerners started going down to Mexico, seeking out the, the, these sacred mushrooms and it really impacted her, her people and her village. And, um, she was, um, yeah, really harmed by that process. So shout out to her. Definitely recommend, um, if you've ever, you know, used or want to use psychedelic fungi, I, I really invite you to read her story read the story of Maria Sabina, um, and, and really sit with, with that knowledge. Um, cause it's, it's deep and it can really help inform our, our relationship with using psychedelic fungi. Um, so other mushroom medicine that are not so psychotropically mind altering. Um, fungi contain whole suites of different enzymes and compounds and, um, polysaccharides and, um, terpenes and aldehydes and keystones and, and phenolic compounds and volatile compounds and fatty acids, like the list goes on and on and on. And it can get really heavy, heady science and molecular. Um, but just know that these fungal beings, they, they contain a large diversity of compounds, which makes them so efficient in providing, um, immunological responses. And because, animals and fungi have those, you know, certain types of similarities and characteristics, the compounds that fungi are producing are actually uh, very well received in our body. So our immune cells, our innate immune cells, our macrophages have specific receptor sites for fungal um, compounds. So specifically these, um, these polysaccharides, which are just, it's a fancy word for long chain sugars. Um, they're called fungal beta glucans. And here's a little diagram that can really, really help. Um, so in the cell wall of fungi, there's, um, chitin, which is that like hard structural compound. And then they're, they're linked with these beta glucans, these sugars in the cell wall of fungi. And it's these beta glucans, which are providing, um, a lot of the immunological functions. Um, how do I, I'm going to go back. Okay. Yeah. It's these beta glucans that are performing a lot of the, um, immunomodulating functions in the body. So these, these beta glucans get extracted and then they go throughout the body and then they actually bind to specific beta glucan receptor sites on the cells of our, um, immune response, which is incredible that, that co-evolution, that symbiosis on an internal level of fungi and humans. Um, and that's one of the reasons why mushroom medicine is so efficient, um, and why it has such a high safety profile because our bodies are, are recognizing these compounds and really integrating them in a beautiful way. Um, 
Other than that, there's uh, ergothionine is an essential amino acid that's found in all mushrooms. Um, and it's one of the amino acids that we need to get through our diet. And, um, it's also an incredible medicine, um, for liver damage and uh, neurodegenerative diseases, heart disease, skin cell regeneration. So whether you're drinking mushroom tea, a reishi mushroom tea, or you're eating oyster mushrooms, you're, um, getting that ergothionine and they have, you know, they have all these different compounds and different concentrations as well. Um, and another thing, the, the beta-glucans I was talking about, um, the, the fungal sugars are also found in every mushroom because they're part of the cell wall. So whether you're drinking a, a medicinal mushroom tea or eating shiitakes, you're also getting those, those fungal beta-glucans, which are really powerful for, for health and immune response. Um, here's some beautiful pictures of some of my favorite fungal allies. Um, on the left is a huge uh, Ganoderma aplanatum, which is the our local reishi. It's in the Ganoderma genus, which um, reishi, the, the common like red reishi or lingji, is Ganoderma lucidum. And um, here we, we don't have Ganoderma lucidum because um, it's not warm enough, really. Um, and so we have Ganoderma aplanatum, which is, which is a, a reishi cousin. And this is a huge one speaking to that, you know, perennial nature of these polypores that can live to be, you know, 10, 20 years old. Um, this one I did not harvest. It was harvested from someone who I know. And, um, they said, you know, it was dead and decaying, but if I, if I were to find a, a being this big on a tree out in nature, I would... I don't think I would feel, um, not, not worthy enough, but it would just feel strange to harvest what, what feels like an elder, you know? Um, but it's beautiful to be in the presence of that. And that mushroom is actually on an altar right next to me. So, Hey, good to see you. Um, and here's some other medicinal mushrooms that I work with really frequently, including the red belted conch, the artist conch, um, turkey tail, the rosy polypore. Um, there's just so much medicine out there for us. Um, yeah, like I said, the, the beta-glucans are in all fungi um, and they're really what's performing um, the one of the more potent uh, medicinal responses of fungi is what we call immunomodulation. And it's immunomodulation is this incredible process where it's not increasing immune function or decreasing it. It's actually modulating it. So mushrooms are biological response modifiers. So they're actually tending to your specific body's needs and they're not like just spiking the immune system or totally depressing it. And a lot of, um, a lot of immune medicines are actually just immune stimulants. So they're stimulating the immune system, but that's not always necessarily good because, um, for example, like autoimmune diseases are actually a body's reaction to, um, too much of an immune response happening in a certain area of the body. So, um, like, um, arthritis or inflammation, you know, inflammation is just a product of the innate immune response, but when there's too much of that happening, it can, it can cause a lot of really serious, um, problems. And so 
fungi are not just stimulating the immune system. They're actually going in and maybe, you know, if you already have too much inflammation happening in a certain area of the body, they'll go in and actually decrease the immune response in that certain area of the body. Um, so they're, they're so amazing and there's incredible science behind this and so, so, so much research out there. Um, one of my teachers and, um, friends, her name is Anna Sitkoff or Anna Sitkoff, sorry. (laughs) And, uh, she is a, um, mushroom medicinal mushroom researcher up at Bastyr university in Washington and an amazing, uh, mushroom medicine maker and, um, her website, Reishi and Roses is a just wellspring of knowledge and research, um, coming from both the, the fungal lens and how these compounds are working in, in the fungus kind of like, you know, de-anthropocentrizing it because a lot of like, you know, people see it's like, oh, mushrooms are medicine. So how can I use that? But we hardly ever think about how are these compounds that mushrooms are producing? How are they working for the fungus itself? And then how do they work for me? Um, so it's really beautiful. She, she frames it in these two ways. Um, so definitely recommend reishi and roses, uh, type it in on Google and she goes through all her different medicinal mushroom preparations and shares her research and really breaks it down on a relatively um, digestible and accessible level, like the hard science between uh, behind mushroom medicine. Um, and yeah, so she's she's amazing and makes all of this knowledge open source. Um, she's one of my main teachers, and I make a lot of mushroom medicine myself. Um, and have actually just started on a journey of, uh, sharing my mushroom medicine with the world, which is really exciting. Um, after, you know, many years of kind of experimenting with my own ways of approaching it, I've started uh, selling tinctures through, um, through my Etsy page and through community. Um, and it's just such an incredible process and, and really making all of this knowledge open source is what I think is, um, is really going to help us on a collective level take autonomy over our healing and not be so reliant on outside forces and on pharmaceuticals um, to to heal ourselves, um, but really look to nature, look back to nature, and um, use all of the allies that exist in nature to to help us be autonomous and sovereign in our healing journeys because we're all on one. And, um, yeah, these are some, some infographics that's on her website, uh, talking about fungal polysaccharides and also how to make mushroom tea. Um, the great part of these beta glucan polysaccharides, these immunomodulating compounds is that they're water soluble. So really to get a lot of the polysaccharides, um, all you need to do is just make a, make a tea with your, with your fungi, um, and teas are really good for like the harder woody, like non-edible medicinal mushrooms, like turkey tail and reishi, um, and rosy polypore and a couple other ones. Um, that's the ones I at least work with up here. There might be different ones in Florida or wherever you're watching. Um, but tea is really good for those and, uh, boil no less than two hours. Cause that helps break the heat and water is what breaks the cell walls and allow these, allows these polysaccharides to come out and be extracted. Um, and, but 
I always advise, you know, if you can eat the mushroom, like these softer bodied mushrooms, like shiitake and oyster and lion's mane and um, chanterelles and whatever, whatever it might be, if you can eat them, I always recommend eating them because that's how, you know, this medicine has been used for thousands and thousands of years just by consuming them. You know, now we have the technology and the science to go in and extract and synthesize and like do all these things. But medicine comes, medicine is brought in the packages it's brought in for a reason. I I personally believe. So these mushrooms contain whole consortias of medicine and the best way to get that in your body is really through eating it if they can be eaten. And with that being said, always cook your mushrooms, always cook your mushrooms. Um, it's the heat itself that is going to break down the cell walls of, of the fungus and allow the beta glucans to be expressed so that the body can, um, synthesize them. And also it just, there's, there's a lot of different things where if you don't cook mushrooms, um, you know, different, uh, different toxins can be present, but, um, for the most part, just general baseline rule, always cooking mushrooms. Um, cool. Here's a, a couple really beautiful pictures of some fungi that I work really extensively with. Um, the, the top right is a red belted conch, Fomotopsis pinicola, um, exuding kind of dripping this, like what's called gatation or this like enzymatic sweat that they, they like sweat out extra water, but it's that sweat that's like full of enzymes and compounds and just like yumminess. And so if I, if it's wet outside and if I ever see mushrooms doing this, I'll often like go and lick, lick them because these water droplets are full of medicine. Um, and Underneath that is Ganoderma aplanatum or artist conch. It's a, it's a local temperate reishi. Um, and then this is a really beautiful uh, turkey tail mandala that I made from one of my harvests. Turkey tails are super ubiquitous and abundant. And I definitely know that they grow all over Florida too. Um, you know, amazing, amazing medicine full of immunomodulating polysaccharides and really great for gut health, really um, extensively researched for treating breast cancer and for anti-cancer compounds. Um, yeah, I could speak a lot to them, but really invite you to... Um, yeah, go on your own medicinal mushroom research journey. There's a lot out there. Or if you have specific questions, please ask me. I will, I will sit with you and talk about mushrooms for a long time. Um, here are some some of my tinctures, just highlighting some of the different ones that I work with, um, and you can find those too online. Um, okay, so I'm getting more towards the end. I'm going to dive into a little bit about mycoremediation and um, thank you all for listening to, to all this, all this juiciness. <laughs> this, is, this is incredible. Um, this, I'm like, I, I did not even realize, and I have a feeling this next section is going to be even deeper. Um, but really quick, I think two uh -huh. or three of the questions are kind of around identification. Okay. And I know that yeah. that's, I know that's a whole Thing. So maybe you can give some books or maybe some shout outs because I think people are a little afraid of like poisonous or yeah. toxic mushrooms. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't go too deep into specific identification on here because I know that, um, 
most of these viewers are probably in Florida, I'm assuming, and I'm out in California and there's completely uh, d like different diverse realms of fung fungi that grow in our unique bioregions. Um, but just a, a breakdown of kind of uh, how to stay safe when foraging for mushrooms for food or medicine um, is always, if you have the opportunity, go with someone who knows, go with someone you really trust who like knows these mushrooms and have, have your first couple experiences of foraging be with someone who, um, who really knows their stuff. I'm going to make a shout out to, um, John fungi, John, who's an incredible wealth of, uh, Florida and Southeast mushroom knowledge and identification. He does mushroom walks, um, and leads classes. So shout out to you, John, such an incredible human. Um, yeah, recommend going with him. Try to see if there's a local uh, mycological club that you can join. There's whole bunches of Facebook groups that are uh, localized to specific bioregions as well. Um, so try to join a Facebook group. There's apps. There's iNaturalist and other identification apps that you can use um, for for getting more specifics. You know, you can. Now you can go out and take a picture and there's phone algorithms that will like point you almost directly to whatever mushroom you're working with or what you're looking at um, so that you don't have to flip through all these dichotomous keys and these field guides. Um, but that being said too, I my personal favorite way is to have a field guide and to really sit with the process of um, identification. <clears throat> there's many different layers to identification based on physical characteristics, based on um, olfactory characteristics, so how they smell. Um, you, if you, there's, there's taste tests you can do. That being said, don't put any random mushroom in your mouth. That's a no-no. Um, but mostly, I, I like to start with, you know, there's, there's a lot of really amazing mushrooms out there, and there's relatively few, like in the grand scheme of things, there are relatively few mushrooms that are going to kill you. Um, there's different can, like realms of uh, toxins that are really dangerous, including the amatoxins are some of the most dangerous. Um, those are the toxins that will, that will really do damage and um, cause liver damage and liver failure and will kill you. Um, but those amatoxins are not found in very many mushrooms. They're found in the genus Amanita, um, and, um, a little bit in gallerina. Um, and other than that, yeah, there's, there's poisons and like toxins and mushrooms that will make you sick. Um, but not so much kill you. So ultimately what I'm trying to say is one of the best approaches, if you're really scared that you're going to find a mushroom that's going to kill you and that you're, you're scared that, um, you're going to make a mistake, get to know the, the dangerous and deadly mushrooms really, really well. Like get like study them, see what they look like in your area, get to know the deadly mushrooms in your area that are present. And once you get to know those, you can have the eye. So when you're out in the field and if you see anything that looks like them, then you know to take extra precaution um, when picking or um, for food or medicine. Um, medicinal polypores are really great as in there are there's super high safety profile. So there's, um, very, very, very few medicinal polypores, um, which are mushrooms that have pores on the bottom that kind of grow as shelves. 
Um, there are very few medicinal polypores that will do any harm. Um, so they have a really high safety profile. Um, but when it comes to more fleshy edible mushrooms, there, you know, are dangerous lookalikes. There are some, um, really sought after edibles that do have some poisonous lookalikes. And so it's, it's a dynamic process and it takes time. It really takes time. So, um, definitely don't, you know, don't give in to, to cockiness or ego and go out and collect a whole basket of mushrooms and like make a meal for your friends. If you don't know exactly what you have, um, field guides in California, you know, there's a lot, there's, uh, edible mushrooms of the Pacific Northwest. There's my personal favorite book. I don't have it with me. Um, I should have brought all my books in here. Uh, but is uh, Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast. That's the field guide that I mostly use in on the, the coastal area of where I live. Um, but I know that there's field guides, there's uh, Mushrooms of the Southeast and just definitely recommend. And then there's more holistic field guides um, like Mushrooms Demystified and um, yeah, many, many different sources for, for that. Um, but I definitely recommend buying a bioregional specific field guide and then using that, going out in the field, um, taking specimens, really sitting and getting to know um, the different types of mushrooms. So, but I absolutely hear you. When I first started uh, foraging, there was, you know, a lot of a lot of kind of anxiety and fear that I held around too of like, Oh no, what if I mess up? What if I like eat the wrong thing? And, um, I've personally been poisoned a couple times, um, which is a really unpleasant experience. Um, and that being said, I, I was poisoned by an, an edible mushroom that is really safe for some people, but I had a um, allergic reaction to because some, and that's a great point too, like some edible mushrooms that, are prized edible mushrooms that are really safe for some people, you can also have an allergic reaction to them. So like the um, shaggy parasol for me, uh, chlorophyllum is a, is a delicacy, a delicious mushroom for some people, but my own specific body constitution had an allergic reaction to it and I was sick for a really long time. So just be safe, be, be um, vigilant, be safe, be curious be cautious and be patient with the process. Really like patience is the one big thing. Um, took me years to, to hold the knowledge that, you know, I do. And even my, my identification skills are nowhere near compared to some of the elders in the field that have been working with these beings for like, you know, 30, 40 years. So bioregional um, safety. And if you ever, one additional eyes, you know, take pictures of your mushrooms and then send them to me because I like helping identify. It helps me get to get to learn as well. Um, does that answer the question? <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. Um, tangents galore. Um, so the next realm I'm going to get into is, is most of the work that I do. Uh, most of the, it's the applied part of my applied mycology. Um, I mean, I guess it can all be applied, like making the medicine and going out in the field, but this is really for me, what I hold as, um, as the, the, 
most enriching part of uh, the work that I do and the study of fungi that I am um, exploring and part of. And it's in remediation. So mycoremediation is literally breaks down into um, the Greek word uh, myco, meaning fungus, and remedium, which is Latin for restoring balance. So using using fungi to restore balance to ecosystems, um, which, as you know, we all have uh, a lot of awareness around, um, and I'm assuming that we do have awareness around this here in this audience, is that. Um, we've set a lot of these systems and cycles pretty far out of balance. We've put a lot of human inputs into these systems that have um, have encouraged them to to pass tipping points and to kind of um, go over the edge. And so how do we use, how do we ally with these incredible earth alchemists and these recomposers and these beings that have been around for billions of years that have been keeping these cycles perpetuating and keeping these cycles in balance. How do we just come in and learn from them and ally with them to uh, figure out how to bring holistic and natural restoration into some of these systems um, that we've augmented. Um, And through all of this, fungi have the natural ability to, break down pollutants. So one of our biggest issues that we're dealing with on the planet is, um, all of our, all of our messes, (laughs) we have taken natural compounds and synthesized them and put them together and made polymer chains that, um, that required a lot of energy to create. And they are very persistent. These organic pollutants, these plastics, these chemicals, we've we've augmented these natural substances into these hard polymer chains that um, are very biopersistent and that are going to be around for a lot longer than we are. Um, So what do we do? You know, that's something that has weighed on me so heavy my whole entire life is like, how do we even begin to address, you know, our, our waste footprint on this planet are the, the, gyre of plastic that's the size of texas in the middle of the ocean like what is what do we do and it's brought me so much um expansiveness and spacious and hope and liberation uh to to understand the inner workings of these fungi and how they actually have the natural chemical abilities to break down these pollutants to uh to on a molecular level um, so there's a lot of different realms in myco and bioremediation. Um, I'm going to specifically be talking about mycoremediation, which is the use of fungi, but I do want to shout out to the microbial remediation using bacteria, um, to, to break down pollutants as well as phytoremediation, which is the use of plants to sequester pollutants and volatize them and transform them and, um, sequester heavy metals and bind them in their, in their leaves and bark. Um, there's a lot of different approaches to this, which is a, a talk I actually gave last night about bioremediation. So very keen on, on, on this subject. Um, so, in, micro, in most microremediation installations, we're mainly using saprotrophic fungi um, for this. And why? Um, one, because it, we have relative ease 
um, and knowledge of cultivating a saprotrophic species. And if you can remember saprotrophic, meaning um, feeding on dead or dying or decaying materials. Um, in cultivation, that's mostly what we cultivate is these is these saprotrophic fungi like oysters and shiitakes and lion's mane um, and uh, um, maitake and a lot of other different um, cremini mushrooms, all the different ones that grow off of this uh, organic material. Um, so we, we know how to cultivate them. Mycorrhizal fungi are really difficult to cultivate and, or not able to be cultivated in the sense that we need to cultivate them. So saprotrophic fungi can be cultivated to scale and because of their ability to break down organic matter, they produce these cellulose and lignin degrading enzymes. So about 1 billion years ago, fungi created the ability um, to produce these enzymes that break down these really complex structural molecules like cellulose and lignin of what plants are made from, the structural compounds in plants. So about a billion years ago, fungi said, you know what, we need more food. We're going to figure out how to eat plants <laughs> really efficiently. And so they created these suites of enzymes that break down um, lignin and cellulose. And lignin and cellulose are really complex um, ringed structural molecules. So to the left-hand side, this is actually um, the molecular structure of lignin or a small part of it. So you can see these, um, these aromatic rings, these, these uh, hydrocarbon rings that um, provide the structure of these molecules. So because saprotrophic fungi can go in and break down lignin, they can also break down what we call polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, um, PCBs, all these organic pollutants, which are very structurally similar to lignin because petroleum and crude oil and all these polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and their derivatives are literally just old, non-degraded organic material that has been buried under the earth for a really long time. So before fungi figured out how to break down plants, they just decomposed and got squashed and buried and, and, and buried under pressure under the earth, which is the gas and oil that we use, the fossil fuels that we use nowadays, because they're so volatile and so high in energy from these hydrocarbon bonds. So all these polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons are just old ancient plants that have been transformed and fungi have the ability to break down plants. So fungi therefore have the ability to break down these organic pollutants. And when I found that out, it like transformed my life. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is it. <laughs> um, and they do this through some really incredible, uh, chemical and metabolic pathways. Um, this is just a diagram of a really a pretty, the, the science here gets really heavy, really fast. So I'm going to keep it light. Um, uh, this is showing how, how cellular, um, the process on a cellular level, how, how fungi can produce these ligninases and cellulases that are breaking down the, the lignin cellulose and pretty much breaking it down and, and cleaving all these hydrocarbon bonds so that they can get sugar like um, glucose out of the plants that they're consuming. And because they can do that, this is a, just a visual pathway of, um, 
uh, phenanthrene, which is a polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon and organic pollutant, um, that Pleurotus ostriatus, which is our common oyster mushroom, it's literally breaking this, this um, organic pollutant down via its enzymes. Um, they also, um, fungi have the ability to sequester heavy metals out of the um, environment. So with organic pollutants, because of the enzymes that fungi have, organic pollutants can actually be degraded and broken down into their components that can be recycled back into nutrient cycles. So they are able to be totally broken down. Heavy metals, on the other hand, are already in their elemental form. So you can't break down heavy metals. And when heavy metals are in certain concentrations, it, it um, really inhibits a lot of uh, cellular responses in organic beings like us. So it's really, really bad. Um, heavy metals are bioaccumulative and biopersistent because they can't be broken down. So they enter into food chains and food webs and cycles and ecosystems, and they just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and become really toxic. Like some of the things that we're seeing in our marine um, animals right now and our fish and in our um, marine mammals, the bioaccumulation of these heavy metals. So what fungi do through another set of really miraculous pathways is they can actually, through the, the mycelial surface, through the hyphal surface, there's this ion exchange mechanism that happens where they can bring in these, these metals that have certain charges on them and either absorb them through their hyphal walls um, or they can undergo a process called chelation where they can actually chelate heavy metals and make them not like no longer um, reactive and toxic in the environment. But mostly fungi are known for sequestering the heavy metals, bringing them into their hyphal cell walls and into their bodies, and then concentrating them in their mushroom fruiting bodies. So that is a really amazing, amazing way we can ally with these beings. Um, there's mycofiltration, which is a similar concept, except instead of, you know, um, healing soil and decontaminating soil, we're flowing water through these mycelial, um, what's kind of like a mycelial membrane, um, a biological membrane. Um, and the mycelium can be either alive or it can actually be dead and still sequester heavy metals. Um, so this is a, a field that I'm working with pretty in depth right now is in microfiltration. Here's some beautiful images of mycelium and you can see that that very like um, tight knit network that they're forming, this membrane, this like active membrane where water can pass through, but other contaminants bind to the mycelial surface. Here are some um, examples of microfilters being applied in the environment. Um, from There's a lot of different studies out right now on microfiltration. Um, still lacking a lot of like the hard data that we need to show whether they're actually being effective or not. But the, the theory uh, behind it is that these, these mycofilters can be very, very um, effective in sequestering contaminants and helping filter water and protecting our waterways and um, actually helping decrease eutrophication as well um, by breaking down um, nitrogen and um, getting excess uh, nutrients out of water bodies. Uh, which I know is a huge 
ecological problem in Florida right now is eutrophication of the water bodies and excess nutrients entering water systems. Um, so I work for Bay Area Applied Mycology. I've been their officer for the past couple of years, and we've done some of these um, these uh, mycofiltration installations, specifically using Strifaria rugoso annulata, the garden giant that I was speaking to earlier, um, growing their mycelium and putting them in burlap bags, um, super low-tech, low-cost ways of doing this work, um, really accessible um, for many people to use. And Strafaria have the ability to, to break down and eat um, waterborne pathogens out of, out of the water. So here are some examples of us doing that. We were doing it on a, um, on a cattle land, so preventing excess nutrients and E. coli and other waterborne pathogens from entering the, the water body for the stream that was just downhill from this. Um, here's another example of uh, implementation that we did on a woman's land in Oakland um, who had a sewage pipe break up above her land and there was like sewage and like really nasty harmful chemicals going onto her land. So we created these like um, mycofiltration buffers on her land. Um, and this is the last thing I wanna talk about. Thank you so much for staying with me through all this. <laughs> um, I currently work for Co-Renewal, which is a, um, mycological organization uh, dedicated to providing community outreach and education and um, really working with a lot of myco restoration initiatives, both here in Northern California and in Ecuador, helping to um, decontaminate the multiple oil spills that have happened in the Amazonian regions of, of Ecuador, um, using fungi to help remediate the oil mm -hmm. down there and working with indigenous communities. Um, so recently we had living in Northern California, as you all, you know, might have heard, we're dealing with this huge element of fire right now, learning how to live with fire. And ultimately, you know, we live in a fire ecology, um, out West, the indigenous peoples have been working with fire for since time immemorial, um, enacting cultural burns on the land and keeping fire as a regenerative force on the land. And over the past century, through the, um, you know, attempted eradication of the indigenous people from white, um, white colonial settlers, um, there is a subsequent effect that has happened where um, because we've, you know, suppressed and oppressed the indigenous people, we've also suppressed their way of being with the land and tending the land, which is cultural burning. And over the past century, there's been this um, reduction in, in fire on the land, which has led to a buildup of fuels. And um, through that intersecting with climate change and all these other forces that are happening and the eradication of the beaver and the bear and the change in the hydrological cycles, it's so deep and systemic. Um, we're seeing these catastrophic wildfires that we're seeing now. Um, and so one of the things that we're doing with co-renewal is because of these um, wild urban interfaces that are happening, as humans continue to, to encroach into forested ecosystems and live in, in the wild, um, these huge catastrophic fires are coming through now and burning houses and structures and causing um, a lot of devastation. And it's 
really intense to, to be with. And, um, I know a lot of people who have lost everything that they, that they have in their life, like everything. And it's a reality that I sit with, with myself. And I'm so grateful that I haven't, um, had to, had to go through that process myself, but it's just, it's a reality that everyone who lives here now sits with all the time. Um, one of those additional layers of climate crisis and how that affects us. Um, so what we're trying to do is prevent the secondary disaster from wildfires. Um, when these structures burn, there's all types of crap that's left behind. Like all the things that we live with in our house, like our paints and our chemicals and our cars and our tars and um, all the different consortia of chemicals that we live with, you know, burn and they don't go away. They, they sit there. And then when the rains come, this toxic ash runoff can go into the environment and really do um, severe damage to the surrounding ecosystems. So we are taking this micro-remediation knowledge and applying it by making these waddles to kind of cap structures and cap houses. And we're inoculating waddles with different microbes and um, fungi and different species, depending on the contaminant. And we're working to help keep those toxins concentrated and working to break down the toxins where they are um, to help protect the, the watersheds and the outside environment from these bioperistant pollutants. Um, there's a lot more I could say there, but that's just a little bit of it. Um, I'm also an artist. <laughs> I work, I make ink from mushrooms. <laughs> uh, Caprinus comatus is a, is a really sweet mushroom that digests itself into this black spore goo ooze that um, I harvest and I make ink out of and um, make these pretty pictures with them. <laughs> um, this is a little bit of my art that I make and I really try to um, embody fungal activism through making art with mushrooms and talking about mushrooms and really trying to get the word out there about how important these beings are. Um, as, as you know, I, I care really deeply about them and really feel like they, uh, they hold so many answers for um, the, the unfoldings that are happening on a global scale. Um, you can also do mycopigments. This is just a, a little touch on some of the other fun things mushrooms can do. You can dye fabrics with mushrooms. All this whole consortium of colors right here are from fungal beings, both mushrooms and lichen. Um, shout out to Alyssa Allen, who is the founder of mycopigments. Go on Google and type in mycopigments. If this stuff, like, um, if this stuff excites you, um, there's a whole realm of different art realms that you can do with mushrooms. Um, and then this is my last slide, just touching on mycopsychology. And I think a lot of the things that I touched on here, um, you know, re reiterating those, mycelium is better thought of not as a thing, but a process which we can extend to all things of life, not objectifying something as a thing, but thinking of everything as a process, um, every being as a process and how to honor that. Um, seeing fung fungi as decentralized intelligence. So another quote from Merlin Sheldrake's book, um, they are everywhere at once and nowhere in particular. And that really sits and resonates with me. This, this intelligence, this um, ability to adapt and observe the world 
um, everywhere at once and nowhere in particular. Um, they are also the bridgers of life and death doing the work in the soil and these cryptic organisms down in the soil and then coming and sprouting into the light and sharing their gifts with us. Um, they are kind of these bridges between life and death. And I think we, we have a lot to learn from them of how to be in relationship with our own mortality and with our own death um, and the cycles of life as above, so below. Um, they're radically adaptable. They, re they allocate their resources. Um, so in human societies, how can we learn from them how to take things that are too concentrated in one place and move them to another um, place, which I know, you know, fleet farming is doing such an incredible job with and uh, food justice and racial justice and social justice. Fungi are really such powerful teachers in um, how to live in harmony and live in balance with all of life. And I personally think the past is fungi, the present fungi, and the future is definitely fungi. And we got a lot to learn. Thank you so much. I know I just went through so many different realms um, and talked for, for quite some time, probably a little bit longer than we thought, but it, uh, it is such a, such a pleasure. You did an incredible job. I'm so impressed with all of the knowledge that you've just absorbed in your very young, vivacious life. And yet I feel like you're just beginning your journey. So I'm so honored that you shared everything that you shared today. Mm. Um, you know, for those of you who are just tuning in or maybe just catch caught the end of this, I'm going to try to do a little speed round here. So you're trying to tell me that fungi or fungi can basically remediate heavy toxins out of the soil, can help break down rocks and turn them into minerals for themselves and for other plants. It can filter, they can filter water, they can filter the air, they can help sequester carbon. They're edible, they can help give us nutrients, they can help, uh, oh my goodness, there's so many things. It's just like, at the end of the day, I feel like the fact that we've been so disassociated with nature and the fact that there's so much that we don't know. Mm. And I think humans have always just gone for the quick fix, which is why we're so quick to turn towards pills and prescription drugs in order to just get a remedy that, you know, and sometimes can save our lives, but in other times could really stunt us from having access to the beautiful gifts that nature has to offer. You even brought up the psychedelic mushroom piece, because I, I have these conversations with my friends all the time about how there's a stigma, a really nasty stigma against certain medicinal qualities that I think people have just stamped on Mother Earth's gifts mm -hmm. that when it comes to mental health and physical health, when you're suffering from things like depression or things like chemical imbalances in your brain, there are some gifts that could help facilitate your path to mm -hmm. finding a balance. Mm -hmm. But because we stamp it as something taboo, mm -hmm. we suppress our ability to fully understand what these gifts could do to help our entire mm -hmm. society. 
Mm-hmm. Because if more people could utilize these gifts to get better, and we truly defined what well meant in a different context than just being able to wake up and function in our society today, mm-hmm. and we saw how nature gives us everything we need to be well, mm-hmm. then we'll have this new sense of respect. Mm-hmm. And one thing you didn't say, which I'm going to call it right out, yeah. outright accountability for our actions, mm. you know, we, bioremediation with these amazing creatures is, is great, but we need to be the ones stewarding the relationships to clean up our own mess too, you know? So, um, that's my two cents on, on everything you just taught me today. <laughs> Beautiful. And thank you so much for, for, for recapping that and for bringing up those two important points. Um, yeah, just like destigmatizing the use of psychedelic fungi and alternative forms of medicine. You know, the the health issues that we're facing on a, like a biophysical level, on an anatomical level, and a, and a psycho-emotional level are so complex right now. Like climate grief and depression and isolation from from the virus. Like there's so many different compounding levels right now. And um, I think that, you know, systemic issues need systemic regenerative solutions. And I really mm-hmm. think that fungi, um, both psychedelic and non, and really even just their presence can can help us be with the unknown in a, in a more peaceful way. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. And also hold us accountable too. of like, they, you know, I think anyone that has used psychedelic fungi might know that um, it wakes you up in ways that are unprecedented um, as yeah, as we, as we well know, it wakes us up and it, and it connects us and it reveals deeper layers of truth. And these fungi, these fungal beings really help, um, show us where, where we need to put our energy, both in our own interpersonal lives and in the world, um, and how to, how to show up. Yeah. How to take accountability and, um, align our awareness with our actions. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing to be aware of these, these things. And it's another thing to, to really act on them and create the life that, um, we know can honor the rest of life as well. So. Well, thank you so much. You got so many thank yous in the chat. And so everybody, please reach out to Taylor if you want. I tagged her in this post. If you have any additional questions, please make sure you're with a professional if you ever want to go foraging. That was another big recap that we talked about. Um, And at the end of the day, Taylor, just thank you so much. I appreciate you. you. And we'll be signing off. Thank you all so, so, so much. Looking forward to to this chatting in a different time yeah bye thank you bye blessings all thanks for listening to the official ideas for us podcast Learn more about our environmental action projects by visiting ideasforus.org and stay in the loop by subscribing to our monthly newsletter. Support this podcast and our environmental action projects by donating or becoming an individual or CSR member today at ideasforus.org memberships. This episode has been made possible by all our valued members. Together, we are advancing environmental action worldwide. 
Please share this podcast with your friends and loved ones and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed it. In the meantime, stay tuned to hear what amazing guests we'll be featuring in future episodes. We'll see you next time on the official Ideas For Us podcast.